You're listening to Go with Jamarlin Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. Today we have Frederick Hudson, uh, the founder and CEO of Pigeonly. Uh, how's it going, Frederick? I'm doing well. Doing well. Uh, let's dive right in. You have a super interesting story. Can we start with your background uh, in terms of high school and kind of how did you get to the point of starting Pigeonly? Yeah, so I grew up in um, uh, St. Petersburg, Florida, which is right outside of Tampa. Um, and, you know, just where I grew up at, it was just the drug culture, right? So that was always around me for the, for the most part, though, St. throughout Pete. my... The, yeah, St. Pete. Did you guys have another name for it? <laughs> yeah, we called it the Berg is what we called okay, it. Okay, the yeah, Berg, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, so, you know, most of that time, you know, I managed to stay out of trouble and, and you know, stay on the right path for the most part. And then um, even, you know, one of the most successful people in my family at the time was my uncle, who I looked up to um, a great deal. And he was in the Air Force. So I said, you know, that's probably what I'm going to do. So I got out of high school, signed up, went into the military. And then <clears throat> some, uh, some of my close family friends when I was in the Air Force, um, they came out to Vegas. They told me what they was doing as far as moving marijuana from, um, at the time, Texas through to Florida and how they was doing it and how inefficient it was. I said, you know, I can make that a lot better, make it a lot more efficient. It got so efficient, it caught the federal government's attention, and I was indicted when I was 23 for distribution of, uh, I think the indictment was like 8,000 pounds of marijuana or something like that. So um, it was during that time when, you know, when I went to prison and I just started noticing and seeing this huge population of people that no one's paying attention to, and more importantly, that everyone had the same problem. It was very difficult and expensive to stay in touch. And then what I didn't know at the time, which I learned later, was... Um, that my observation of how often people could stay in touch, how difficult it was, was backed by over 40 years of research showing that people who couldn't afford it, didn't have the financial means to stay in touch, were more likely to get in trouble, more likely to be back in prison. The people who could maintain those family connections, those were the folks I didn't see come back. Long story short, um, got out around 2012, got with my co-founder Alfonso, who I had known for a good while, you know, while I was in the Air Force. And we started what's now Pigeonly, which in a sentence is basically a platform that makes it easy for people to search, find, and communicate with incarcerated loved ones. Um, so today, you know, we have customers over in 88 countries, and, you know, we're shipping over three to 4,000 um, orders a day all over the United States. Um, we do a little over 2 million phone minutes a month. Um, so, you know, now we've gotten to the point where we're pretty well known in the industry as far as at least one of the largest independent providers um, for providing that communication. You were incarcerated for selling drugs. Yeah. Was it marijuana or all types of drugs? Marijuana. 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 Okay, yeah, got it. Yeah. And would you say that your experience in the Air Force helped you in the drug game? No. Nah, in I mean, terms of it gave you kind of a unique. Yeah, I, w I would say I would say what I got from the Air Force was um, discipline. It really taught me a lot of discipline. Yeah. Um, it really taught me how important it is to have a process to everything that you want to do because, um, you know, the, the military has a process for every single thing, right? They yeah. have a, you know, it's really outlined and it's very few, very rare you can do something that's not, you know, on a program like that. So um, that's something that I took forward and that's something I, I was very disciplined about regimen because, you know, we, um, you know, had people in three different countries. So, and over, you know, 50, 60 people you're managing and, you know, it's not your typical employee, a type of employee that you're managing, right? So it, it took a lot of discipline. It took a lot of process to be able to manage it, you know, at the level we was doing it. Um, and I would say that's probably some of the things that I took um, with me then that I even still 
to this day because you know for, i mean for the most part business is business it really doesn't matter you know whether you're selling marijuana or whether you're selling cupcakes it's for the most part it's all the same process yeah i'm, I'm thinking that that unique experience probably you know not a lot of people if anybody uh in st pete <laughs> are pushing you know marijuana right uh but they've been into the into that system of the air force where you right. know, you put that you put the streets and that together you may have a competitive advantage and I'm, that may have of course helped you in uh tech as well you get busted how did that come about yeah so it was so it was going on for about maybe i don't know three four years something like that not probably closer to four or five years actually um and it was just one day so at the time um because it was getting the volume was getting so much um, we had to get to the point where we had tractor, we had tractor trucks, and it was just so large where we had to graduate from just using shipping centers. And I used to go to different um, UPS stores and mailbox etceteras and FedExes and things like that to ship it, and got to the le level where it was enough. So then I opened up my own mail store so that I would be able to have the means to be able to ship as much as I want. Um, and uh, so one day I was at that store. And it was really quiet, you know, you know, a couple of my friends that was in St. Pete, I hadn't heard from usually, you know, I would hear from people pretty early on the West Coast because, you know, it's early on the East Coast. So I would hear people hear from people around six, seven in the morning. I didn't hear from any people that day. So the day just started out feeling weird. Um, and then I'm thinking of uh, <laughs> Johnny Depp's movie Blow, where it's like the final run. Yeah, yeah, just it was, like, it was just, yeah, yeah, it just didn't feel yeah. that morning. It just didn't yeah. feel right because I mean, it was it was a little bit. It was a few days after big shipment had went down, so I was waiting for the money to come back from the East Coast. So we're not talking about five, six, seven thousand dollars. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? So that stuff was like clockwork. So. Um, that morning just felt very strange because usually, you know, we would have our check-ins and messages and stuff like that. And, um, I, it was just silent. Um, and then, so I said, you know, I'm not going to strip out. This is not the first time that, you know, we've had scares. It's not the first time that something has went sideways. Um, it was just a part of, part of the process and part of the business where shit will go sideways more often than not. So it didn't, it didn't throw me off right away, but it just didn't feel right. So I ended up going to the store and then about... I don't know, five or six cars just pull up all of them are cars and agents jump out with guns drawn. And at that point, you know, I knew what was happening. So, you know, they took me into the federal building, which was maybe about 15, 20 minutes away from there. And they read me my charges. And that was the beginning of the end. I, it I was, was all say. good yeah. a few weeks ago. So <laughs> did you have kind of some team members that kind of took you out? No, nah, I mean, so the thing about the thing about drugs is that you can't do everything by yourself. Right. So. At some point, you're going to involve other people, and the more people you involve, um, the more opportunities or more uh, links that can be broken, right? And yeah. that's what happened, right? So you you're had bigger, more yeah. Risk. You have you just have you 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 know you had you know we had UPS drivers and FedEx drivers and DHL drivers on payroll. Then you have UPS drivers that you know start making a lot more money than what they're used to, and then you start going to work at UPS and you trade in your. Camry for a Porsche truck, people gonna start asking questions. Yeah. So <laughs> that's that's how it is. Those, you start asking the right questions to the right people, start applying the right pressure. Um, before you know it, people say, okay, yeah, it's not coming from me, it's coming from there. And then before you know it, you know, I was the last person they picked up because I was far. You were the from big it. guy. Right, you were the don. So it was just the, at the end of it, at the end of the chain. So it's just one of those things where, where you know, it just went upstream. So okay, got it. So you spent time in the pen four years. What was that experience like? Like, what does the public get wrong uh, about spending kind of years in the pen? 
I mean, it's different. So um, I can speak on federal because my time was in the federal institution, yeah. so <clears throat> which is a lot different than than states. Um, but from the federal side, you know, it really depends. So you know, I went in when I was twenty three. So because of my age. Um, and because of the crime. So one of the things that the government has is if you have over a certain amount of drugs, even if it's um, uh, even if it's marijuana, they classify you as a violent offender. So because we had over at least my indictment was over a thousand kilograms, it classified me as a violent offender. So I had to do things like register in Vegas as a violent offender and all those other kind of things. And what that also does is that when you go to prison they raise your security level so that instead of going to a camp or going to a, a low institution, you shoot straight to the top and you go to a penitentiary, which is the worst of the worst, right? So, you know, you might have five, six year sentence, but you're doing time with somebody who has life. Um, so it creates a very different dynamic. But what I will say is one of the things that the way the institutions and just the culture of, of prison is that everything is really driven by respect. You give respect, but then you also have to know how to demand respect back. And that's pretty much how it is. Were you and, tested there? Yeah, I mean, things will happen. Like, for example, <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. So in the, in the room, there's, a, there's just an open room. You have TVs on the wall, and all the TVs have, like, um, radio tuners so that in order for you to hear the TV, you tune your radio. So first thing you do in prison, you buy a radio, and then you can tune to the radio. You can listen to the music, or you can watch whatever's on the television. So guys that's been there a while, they have spots. So if you knew, you don't know what somebody's spot is. And the spot is, you, is not distinguishable from another spot. It's just a spot on the floor that this is this guy's spot. And this is where yeah. he'll put his chair to watch his show. So when I, it was, I was there maybe not that long, maybe a uh, couple weeks. And um, I put my chair in the wrong spot. So I'm sitting in someone's spot. I don't know whose spot I'm sitting in. You don't know the rules. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, know, right? Yeah. So the thing that's interesting is that everything is segregated. So... All the races stay together. So the blacks are with the blacks, the whites are with the whites, the Mexicans are the Mexicans. There's some Mexican lanes that roll with the blacks. There's some Mexican gangs that roll with the whites and some Mexican gangs that roll by themselves. Being because I did it all my time mostly on the West Coast, the, the gang culture is very, very strong on the West Coast. So, and uh, what state were you in? in the at this time, I was in Arizona. Arizona, good guy. Yeah, so, so you know, institutions on, 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 that side of, on that side of the country is majority Mexican, right? So any conflict... That, 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 that you have, I can have a conflict with one individual. It doesn't end with me. It turns to all the blacks now have a conflict with this, whatever group that person came from, with all his group. Yeah. So that's what happened. So in the TV room, because me, me and this guy had his convict, then all of a sudden it was Mexicans against the blacks because of that conflict, right? So that was one of those things where, you know, they put everybody on lockdown and it was, it was all crazy. But it just gets crazy because and that's just one of many offense it was guys it was just dispute over a washing machine and we had a riot and the riot went on for days so it's just things it's like that, individual yeah. conflict is like yeah, yeah, yeah tribal yeah. conflict absolutely yeah. that's that's yeah. I mean, that's just how it is so yeah. you know and it's one of those things where where you know where you from so you know you have the groups within a group so if you're from florida you with the florida guys the florida guys are within the blacks and then the blacks are just as a whole or if you're a crip then you're a crip within the crips and then the crips are within the blacks as a whole and then that's how it goes you take this experience and you come up with a innovative solution pigeonly talk about putting the idea in place and kind of how far away is that from you getting out of jail? Yeah, so while, while I was present, what I, what I used to spend my time doing, after you adjust, right? So it takes a lot of time to get adjusted. 
you're in a whole different world. Yeah. Um, once once you kind of get that adjusted and, you, you know, you kind of get into your routine, whether it's working out, going to the law library, going to the regular library, whatever it is that you do. Then, you know, you start figuring out how to program what you call inside. You call it programming because you have to figure out how to do the time or else you just lose your mind. Right. So you basically set up this program with I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And, do that, and it just uses up your day. And that's how you can get through the day. So what I used to do was, you know, after working out, obviously, and, 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 um, and you know, reading and things like that, I would just brainstorm business ideas and I would just make the whole business model in my head or on paper, whatever I had access to. So I would go through every step from just envisioning how much money I would need to what I would buy, how many people I would employ. And I would just basically, it was just my way of, for lack of a better word, of just mental exercise just to kind of go through the process of at least what I thought, at least what I understood. The cool thing about federal prison um, is that what you're also with um, are with a lot of white collar guys, right? So these are the guys who were at Fortune 500 companies and who are tax evasion or there was a lot of politicians and things like that. So you get a very, very diverse group of people, you know, when you, when it comes to federal institutions. So, um, I had a lot of people around me that I leveraged for mentors, and they would and they would teach me, you know, not only the language of business in some cases, but also the steps that you have to take. Um, and I would just apply that to all the different problems that I would see. So I've always naturally been good at identifying a problem and building a solution for it. But you know, a lot of those guys turned to my mentors and how to put a framework around that, and you know, what is it like to build a financial model, things like that, things like that I didn't know before. I learned a lot of that in jail. So, um, and that's what I would do. So I did that for several business ideas, whatever I can come up with. Some were stupid, some made sense, some didn't. But it was all about practice for me. It was all about that mental exercise for me. It necessarily wasn't about um, actually doing it. It was really about just going through that mental exercise of going through all those steps. By the time I got released, I almost felt like I did that shit already before. You know what I'm saying? So it, it, it really went down from the outside looking in. People was looking at us. And they was looking at the speed at which we was getting things done. But it almost felt like... I had ran through this and through my mind over and over and over and over for years with different ideas. You're saying that just, you had pigeonly in your mind while you were locked up? Yeah. Okay, I actually good. tried to give it to We laugh about this now, but one of my dudes that was in my housing unit, um, I actually tried to give the idea to him. Because I, so I had so many ideas of things I wanted to do. And I was like, hey, why don't you do this? He's like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. I was like, Are I'm you gonna thinking do it. about subscription and stuff like that? I wasn't that? thinking about yeah. that. I was thinking about just a business to make it easy at the time for people to be able to upload and send photos from their phone and have those photos shipped and delivered. Um, so yeah. that's as far as it went at the time. Yeah, what I love about your experience is that we can get into technology and uh, you know, the startup game and maybe, you know, some people want to go work, uh, use this and go yeah. work at Facebook or yeah. work at Google or, or whatever. But we can also solve problems yeah. that are specific to us uh, and we can weaponize it to lift our people up. Right. You know, it's not just kind of, hey, get into STEM or, or get into tech. You know, you can go into the pipeline, the Silicon Valley pipeline. Uh, but you can also get into this game and create positive weapons for us, people right. who look like us. Right. You spend four years. Almost five. Almost five years yeah. in the pen. And how do you feel about white folks being structured to legalize marijuana and then start making billions while there's so much pain and suffering right. among the black poor 
who were doing the the same thing under an illegal so-called right. illegal regime how, how, you know you have a lot of skin in the game on this issue yeah how does yeah. that i mean you know, make you feel? it's i think one of the things that that kind of shows and reminds you the war that we lived in is the fact that i have a felony with marijuana that prevents me from ever being able to participate in the legal marijuana business um, and that's not just me. That's anybody that has a felony. You, you won't even be able to qualify for a license. Um, so it's, it's, it's what we've seen time and time again where, where there's systematic and systemic things that are in place that allows one group of people to be more prosperous than others. I mean, it's no different. Um, we don't start on the level playing field. We don't start at the same line. Even if you've never seen a day of prison, if you've never been outside the law in your life, you still don't start off on an equal platform as your white counterpart. It's just not true. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those things where, you know, we, um, at least for me personally, you know, it makes me more so, you know, one, be conscious of it and then do what I can to be involved in policies and to make sure that I can use whatever leverage that I have and network that I have to be make sure I'm in the rooms when these policies are discussed and when those things are happening because that's the only that's the only real re, real way we're gonna see change. I mean, there's more to just voting and and all that. It's really about putting your money and energy to have people pushing your agendas like what other groups do. And I think that's what we're missing. In terms of like lobbying and, and, and special lobby interest is Right, group, right, yeah. right. And I think that's what we have to, we have to start thinking that way if we really want things to turn our way. Because other than that, you know, there's, it's just somebody, you know, that you want to, you know, do something for you. But when you think of other groups and you look at other initiatives that have happened, um, you know, and you can pick whatever initiatives that's happened in the past, you know, they had a group that not only was pushing for something, but they also putting their resources and energy behind that to put that person in the front to say, hey, we're hiring you to get this job done, so to speak. It sounds like what you're talking about is the design of the Monopoly board is so much more important than whatever the thimble is doing in terms of... Absolutely. For black people, we're getting caught up on these micro issues. These issues may be important. How someone looks, the gender, someone said this, someone make you feel a certain way. Right. But the Monopoly board is based on lobbying, money, and special interest. Yeah. Those are the people Play the game. who are designing the policies right. and your, your oppression. According right. to Eric Schmidt, the former CEO and then the chairman of Google, he said lobbyists write all the laws. So why aren't we? We're just not thinking that way. Yeah, we're, we're just why not think, why we're, aren't we focusing well, on that? He's think, telling think, you that. Yeah, I think, I think we're, 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 we're just not, and I had no idea we was going to get into all this, but okay. <laughs> we're just going to roll with it. Yeah. But, you know, it's one of the things that, you know, we started paying attention to with our company is, is that we realized that in order for us to really be disruptive, I mean, we're going against two multi-billion dollar organizations that are in our space that basically have the correction space locked up when it comes to communications. And I learned early on. You're talking about the private prison yeah, exactly, complex. Exactly, exactly. Industrial complex. Right. Yeah. So what started exposing me to what we're talking about is I realized that we can have as good as a product as we want. We could have all the investing funding that we need. But unless you have the right people in the right room that's pushing your interests, you're not going to get anywhere. So I'll give the you an example. The lobbyists have so much yeah, power. It's just, it's just, it's just, you're not going to get anywhere. So I'll give you an example. So over the past 10 years, there's been a huge battle in the FCC when it comes to like, 
phone rate blocking. So basically what these phone companies were doing, these prison phone companies in particular were doing, was that if you was a consumer and you signed up for, let's say, Pigeonly or a company similar to Pigeonly, and that would allow you to save rates on, yeah. allow you to save money on your phone calls, they will block your calls. So essentially what they was telling Jamarlin is that you can't use Sprint, you can't use uh, AT&T, you have to use this provider because they knew that that would guarantee that they would be able to get the most revenue out of you. Yeah. So what we did and what we learned the hard way is that we had to invest in in attorneys and lobbyists to make sure our interest was heard to say, yo, this is fucked up. You should not be able to do that. You should not be able to dictate to a consumer what phone company they can and can't use. So this went on for years. We put a lot of money into that. And the law eventually passed where you can't do that anymore, right? So now it is illegal for that to happen. That wasn't illegal a few years before. Is that a specific state level? or No, that's federal. That's federal. That's FCC-wide. Yeah. So that's just a small example. You played a part in that. Yeah, that's a small example of us pushing our interests, talking to the right people. And banging uh, against the lobbyists. And then then pushing, pushing an agenda that that not only was good for us, but also was good just for the consumer because yeah. the consumer should not be forced to always have to make a call a certain way that ensures a company to make the highest profit. No competition. That doesn't, that doesn't yeah. make sense, right? So, but it's been that way for years. Just no, and, and the people that's paid the price of that was all brown and black folks. Yeah. But they was complaining. They were sending all the letters that they want. But until someone actually put dollars and effort into it and put the right people in a room that has the influence, it doesn't change. And... That's true with any policy, major policy shifts. And that's what we're starting to see with criminal justice. All this criminal justice talk that you're seeing, this is not just, just you know, you see all the people that are talking about it, but behind the scenes, you have people that have financial interests in changing this. Yeah. So you have the Cox brothers, you have a lot of big people that are putting lots of money into what we just see and we feel like, oh, everybody's talking about criminal justice now. And so I think as, as a people, if we start understanding how the game works, we can start playing the game for our own benefit. We need to think bigger Absolutely. in terms of Absolutely. lobbying. Yeah, I would say, you know, when you hear a lot of black voters who are politically active, lobbying in special interest groups doesn't right. make their top five. Right. That's a problem. Right. Because that's where the design of the Monopoly Board, of course, right. is uh, taking place. So your revenue model, where, where do you generate the most revenue? For us, uh, yeah. so we have a subscription model, subscription-based model. So right now, people can um, basically they can pick and choose. We have six consumer-facing products. So we have the phone product, which obviously is our most popular. Um, How does the phone product work? So it's very similar to a Google Voice or Skype. When you sign up, you um, can you tell us, you know, I'm, I want to be able to receive a call from John Smith. Um, one of the things that's unique to us is that we built a database that tracks everyone who's in the system, it tracks every institution, and those information like. Um, What's the phone rates at this given prison? Um, what's the address? What's the visitation rules? What's the pricings? It you knows built all, this out. Yeah, 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 and it tracks it out. So there's over 17,000 facilities that this is tracking 24-7 because yeah. each, each institution is different. You can be literally across the street from each other. They're completely different. So when you go to our site and you put in John Smith, it'll look and allow you to you know, show up where John Smith is. You can say, okay, cool. I want to be able to get calls from John Smith. Um, you can press the phone button. It'll give you a telephone number. And then going forward, John Smith will call that number instead of your regular number to be able to reach you. And then when he calls the Pigeonly number, we'll connect that call to your existing cell phone or landline. Um, so and then in doing so, we're routing the call the cheapest way possible. So, okay. for example, instead of paying, uh, you know, uh, for example, the federal prison, it's what, 300? You get to speak 300 minutes, so it costs $70 at 23 cents a minute. Yeah. With our service, those same 300 minutes cost you 18 Okay, so it's it. more expensive to not be 
a yeah. Pisley customer than it is to be a Pisley customer. Okay, guy, and how many of your customers are black in the United States? I don't know that stat, but if I use the prison stat, I would say the majority. majority. I would say, yeah, well, I would say, yeah, 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 majority. Subscriptions, you got phones. Uh, what? You yeah, so we have, yeah. we have phones, we have letters, postcards, greeting cards, articles. So basically, we just give people multiple um, options on how to stay in touch. Um, basically, try to connect all of us who live in this digital world to this population that lives in a mostly analog world. Okay, got it. Could I use your platform to type a letter online and then you're going to send it out? Right. So basically okay. what it works is that you'll type the letter. Um, you can sign it with your finger um, just to kind of get that personalized touch. And then you hit the send button and then it goes off a filmic company. Um, and then it's printed to ship the mail. And then the inmate will receive the actual tangible letter that you typed in like three to five days. Can you talk to the problem of, you know, a lot of our people, some family members get lost in the system. Absolutely. Yeah. So can you talk about how big a problem that is. That's, that's one of the, it. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the things that we, why we built what we call Haystack. And what Haystack is basically um, um, our, our platform that makes it very hard for someone to be lost in the system. Because one of the things that we found out, um, at least from my experience as well, is that I was in eight different institutions. So it was some of my close family friends that couldn't even find me, right? And there's some attorneys that can't find their clients because you bounce around so much. And it's not like there's some customer service line you can call out of jail and say, hey, I'm looking for somebody or where's this person at? Or you don't get no notification. It just happens. Yeah. So um, when I saw that, I said, you know, we can tie all these databases together. And one of the problems are is that um, you would think that this wouldn't be the case, but there's states don't talk to each other. Institutions don't talk to each other. So you can go from one institution to another. There's no communication between the two. So, for example, the way criminal justice data is stored and tracked in California is completely opposite than how it's stored and tracked in Texas and how it's stored and tracked in, in Florida. And none of these things talk to each other. So what basically what we built was a software layer on top of that to tie all these independent data sources together so you can have one centralized database that can kind of see from a 50,000-foot view of everything that's going on across the system. Um, so what that helps, you know, for example, we have a lot of attorneys that use our service to be able to know at any time where their loved one is or when their where their client is or whoever they're trying to see, they can see where that person is. Um, even though um, all that data is there, um, it's just not just not tied together. It's, it's very antiquated the way it's set up today. You have your your business model uh, thought out before you get out. It's time to get investors. Right. Talk about that process. Yeah, so I mean, I didn't, I, when, I, when we started, I didn't know what I didn't know. So um, we first built the first version of what Pigeonly, which was a very basic, ugly, barely working, but worked um, way for people to upload photos, send it, How have it printed. How did you get your first ship. developer? Did you go to Odesk or something like <laughs> that's that? That's similar with the freelancer.com. Okay, got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that, that's yeah. what I did early in the yeah, game, man. Yeah. It's just scrappy. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, you went on there, you post a job, and, you know, we got that first person, and, and um, you know, with some, I was looking for someone that I can just talk plain English to, because once again, I didn't know the speech. Now I can speak fluent you know, developer talk, but at the time I couldn't, right? So, you know, I had to hire someone that I can just speak in plain English and say, hey, this is what I'm trying to accomplish, this is what I'm trying to build. Um, and then they can convert that into functional specs that an engineer can use to actually build something that you know, is pretty close, if not exactly what you want. Because um, there's always a disconnect a lot of times between the business parties and the engineering team or the design side of the house and engineering team. A lot of times it disconnects between the two. Um, 
but you know when we had we had we had somehow figured out how to get the product done we got the product built um alfonso and i and then um we uh i was watching um cnn one day and um cnn special um black in america came on and it was talking about the new accelerator at the time i didn't know what accelerator was i never heard of an accelerator um, we had talked to a couple people in Tampa about investment, but there was like Florida, you know, yeah, Florida not yeah, carrying any yeah. weight. There was, <laughs> it was like, what you investing? What tech? What Man. do you have any assets? I'm like, what assets? Yeah. Software, right? So Florida's a- <laughs> Florida's low. Uh, at least I know at this time, Florida would be super low on tech and high they on they, crazy. They don't understand. They just don't get it, right? So, um, so I, I almost started to to give up on that and we was just focused on making revenue, right? Yeah. So um, then I saw this thing and it was talking about Silicon Valley. I'm like, what the hell is that? And then I started reading about it and Googling it. I was like, yo, there's a place where they embrace this and they're giving people money if you have a tech business. I think we kind of qualify as a tech business. So I started applying to all of them that I could find. I applied to Y Combinator. I applied to Techstar. I applied to New Me Accelerator. I applied to everyone that I could find an application for. I even found one. I forget the name of it. They've gone now. But there was one in Tampa that I even yeah. applied to, right? They all said no. A few months rolled around. The next class was coming out. I did the did same thing Did they ever again. give you feedback, any of no. them? No. No, just they, no. Would, they would just, just say, no. no, we didn't accept you. You know, they have, you know, they let you down softly. You know, keep pushing, you know, doing a great job, but whatever. I got to think they're thinking... You know, the market's not big enough. This is some off yeah, the wall shit right, right here. Right, right. And I, I'll, get like to that. I'll get to the market. Yeah, exactly. yeah, go ahead. People, yeah. So then the second go around, um, you know, we got a response from Numi and um they it was like maybe two or three weeks before the class was about to start. And at the time I'm on probation, I'm not allowed to leave the state. So I pick up and I leave. And I said, you know, I'll just figure out the rest later. And I'm like, man, I hope I don't get stopped. I hope I don't get pulled over because I'm going to violate my probation. They're going to send me right back to jail. So I get out to, um, to, to San Francisco um, to start the program. And then, you know, I would be in a program and I'll shoot back to Florida so that I could be around if the probation came around. Eventually, um, I, I sent the letter of acceptance that we was getting this program. And, and I sent it to the probation officer and they gave me approval to travel, and then I, while I was in Excel, I was the only person in Excel that had to keep, that had the probation officer showing up at the damn accelerator house, and you know, the other guys looking around like, who the hell is this coming, flashing a badge and stuff around, but that was just a part of what I had to go through. So, um, long story short, you know, as we went through that program, at the end of it, we was the only company that had a tangible working product with customers and had was making money every day. And it wasn't because we knew that that was important to have, it's because we didn't know anything different. We didn't know that. We thought that was the norm, right? Like, so you didn't, you didn't know, yeah. like, hey, I'm messing around and get in a situation. I can lose money for exactly. seven years. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So we just was doing what we thought we had to do. And um, basically, um, when when it was time for Demo Day and it was time to, to talk to the first batch of investors that they introduced us to, we stood out because we knew what our customer acquisition costs were. We knew, you know, how one on what our revenue per day was. We knew what our growth rate from week to week was. So we knew we knew what those things were, um, and it, it validated that at the bare minimum, if people didn't understand what we were doing because they never heard it before. Because most investors, that's what they said. We never heard anybody approach us. We've heard just about every variation of every type of pitch in the world. We haven't heard anybody talk about anything remotely close to this market. We was one of the very first companies to even talk about doing what. They're starting to call justice tech and all this kind of stuff now. It wasn't a thing then. Yeah. So, so you know, people had to at least pay attention to us because we had tangible numbers. And a lot of what would be considered our peers, 
not necessarily in the, in, the, in the class, but just a new company starting out. A lot of them didn't have customers. A lot of them didn't have revenue and things like that. And we had that, right? So a lot of them didn't have a customer acquisition strategy that worked. So, you know, people had to pay attention to us at that point. And that's how we was able to secure our first million dollars in seed, in seed funding. This is part one. Tune into the next episode for part two. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Go. You can check me out at Jamarlin Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's go.